0: Tens of thousands of people are tuning into this episode from all over the world. And every single one of us has one thing in common. We've tried to change something about ourselves and failed. Now, what usually happens if you're like me is I try to make a change. I identify something I want to do better. I want to work out more, eat better, study more, learn more stuff. I try, I fail. And then I think there's something wrong with me. I must not have wanted it enough. I'm not tough enough. I don't have enough self-control to make this change. I have good news and good news. Good news number one, there is a better and more effective way to make change happen. And we landed the perfect guess to show us how. Welcome to the Learner Lab podcast. I'm Trevor Regan. Each episode we dig into one topic that can help you and your people get better at getting better. Today, we're talking about how to change with Katie Milkman.
1: My name is Katie Milkman.
0: She's a professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. In 2021, she was named one of the world's top 50 management thinkers and the world's number one strategy thinker.
1: Pretty good. Pretty, pretty good.
0: When we're thinking about how to change, how to change ourselves, the people around us, even changing our team or organization, our approach and the things that we say to ourselves and others usually sound something like this Our results will not change until our habits
1: change. No one's paying you to think about it. Just do it, son. Visualize success and get it. You just have to want it. I think most people think there are a couple of hacks out there. Maybe they've heard of the value of goal setting or visualizing success, and they figure those off-the-shelf tools could be useful.
0: These broad, cookie-cutter, and sometimes oversimplified approaches are basically just saying, hey, you gotta want it more, or just do the thing, or just build a habit.
1: And the misconception is that we can just apply one of those willy-nilly to whatever our problem is and get good results.
0: The problem with the the broad or oversimplified approach to thinking about change is those strategies don't address the actual obstacles to the change.
1: When it comes to behavior change, the devil is in the details. And you have to understand what exactly is holding you back to figure out what tool can help. If you try using a habit-based approach to solve a problem that's not working for you because you're forgetful or because you lack confidence, you are not going to get very far because habits don't solve those problems. I actually think habits, while very hot right now, as you say, and very useful, and let me just say, I'm a huge fan of the large literature on habits. I've done work in this area. There's lots to know that's value, but it's just a tiny piece of what you need to understand to achieve change in all parts of your life. Habits don't get you where you want to be for so many challenges. So it's a common misconception that there's easy fixes that don't require a careful diagnosis to figure out what's right for you.
0: So it's about finding the right tool at the right time for the right person. This tailored and science-backed approach to dealing with change is a little bit more difficult, but much more effective than the traditional strategies. In Katie's book, How to Change, for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see my dog ate the cover, but she talks about the seven most common obstacles to change. Getting started, impulsivity, procrastination, forgetfulness, laziness, confidence, conformity. With Katie's help, we're going to dig into each one of these obstacles, and then she's going to give us some science-backed strategies to overcome that particular obstacle. And then at the end of the episode, I'm going to connect her message to the learning process itself and share some things that have really, really helped me over the last few months. Let's first dig into confidence.
1: Confidence is a big barrier. If you don't believe you can do something, you're not going to lift a finger. You're not going to make the effort. So you have to believe that this is feasible for you.
0: The idea here is, if we don't believe that we can change, none of the other stuff matters. So, how do you think we address this?
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I have two answers. I'm going to do one more briefly than the other. The one I'll do briefly, and and that's also, I think, already pretty widely known, is that um, mindset matters. So, Carol Dweck at Stanford University has really pioneered amazing research showing that if we have a growth mindset, and if we Foster a growth mindset in others, we get better outcomes than if, if we um, have a fixed mindset or foster that. So, a growth mindset is thinking about any skill or ability as able to grow. A fixed mindset is thinking, this is what I've got. You know, this is the IQ I was born with. And the reason it matters is if you think and frame and discuss things in terms of, of growth, and you know, you can grow your IQ, you can grow your abilities, then any kind of bad outcome, any failure is not interpreted as diagnostic, but as a learning opportunity. And so that's that's confidence building instead of confidence depressing. So as leaders, we can foster growth mindsets, use different language to do that. Um, and that's really helpful.
0: At the end of our last episode, I went for over 10 minutes on different strategies that can help foster and build a growth mindset. So if you're curious about that piece, I would highly recommend episode six
1: the other thing though that i want to touch on that i think is really powerful and not as well known something you can do to boost confidence is is give people an opportunity to coach others working towards similar goals so Lawrence research has shown this is counterintuitive and tremendously productive when people coach others they improve their own performance for several reasons one, if you're coaching someone else on say, you know, how to be more effective at delivering presentations at work. First, it boosts your confidence. There's a little confidence boost just in the, in the ask to give advice. And that's a big deal. Second, it is going to force you to introspect deeply about what would work for you in a way that you might not have done if you weren't now accountable to helping someone else. When we try to help other people, we often care more. We take a, a, a more, um, dispassionate approach to analyzing a problem. And then once you've generated all these insights and you've coached someone else and say, hey, you should do this and you should do that and you should do the, the other, you're going to feel totally hypocritical if you don't take that exact advice yourself. So in randomized controlled trials, uh, Lauren has showed that even spending 10 minutes, and I got to be involved in one of these studies that we did with high school students, just spending 10 minutes reflecting on study tips that might help younger peers, helped students improve their own GPA in high school um, significantly. But if you think about how could I foster this in a workplace, you might imagine putting programs in place that are a lot more involved than 10 minutes reflecting on a survey on how I could coach someone else. Um, There's a lot of research on how mentoring programs can help um, mentees, but there's also some evidence that they can really help mentors. And if you think about a program like Alcoholics Anonymous, not only – is this incredibly effective program giving each new member a sponsor because they need a mentor, but sponsors are existing members and are benefiting from coaching someone who's new. So think about ways if as a leader, you can invite someone on your team who you think lacks confidence and could really build a skill to coach someone even more junior than them on that dimension and, and see what great things can come from that.
0: A really important thing that I learned from Katie's book as far as like getting started, don't underestimate the power of a blank slate or a fresh start. So it actually is effective and important to start things on a Monday, start things on the first of the month. And she talks about like, look, it's kind of good to have the New Year's resolution. With that fresh start and fresh slate, we're more likely to get the ball rolling. Impulsivity or in Trevor language, doing the thing that feels good and awesome now and valuing that in the moment more than maybe something that would benefit us in the future. This is caused by a bias that we all deal with all the time called present bias. This is me wanting to eat better, but also downing an entire carton of Ben and Jerry's last night. So you can think about this in all sorts of different ways. It could be present now is going to beat future now or easy, fast, enjoyable now is going to beat slow, patient, tomorrow, boring. Or as our good friend Alex Belzer says, the doer defeats the planner almost every time. Obviously, you can see that this is a big obstacle that we all have to deal with when we're making a change. So what do we do to fix it?
1: One strategy I've studied for doing this is something I call temptation bundling. If there's a chore you'd be tempted to procrastinate on, like exercise or literally doing the laundry or cooking a fresh meal for your family, um, can you actually sweeten that with a temptation that you combine? So you say only allow yourself to binge watch your favorite TV show while you're exercising at the gym, or you only let yourself listen to a favorite podcast while you're folding laundry, or Only let yourself open a favorite bottle of wine while you're cooking fresh meals for your family. And now something that used to feel like a chore and a burden, you start looking forward to and craving because it's associated with a temptation. So that can help with procrastination. And that sort of flips the equation.
0: Another strategy to deal with impulsivity is to remove the cue or the actual thing if possible. It's really hard to eat the Ben and Jerry's if it's not in the freezer. Or if I bring a book on my flight instead of my iPad, I'm more likely to read. There's actually a famous story about Blake Bortles. He's an NFL quarterback. He bought a Tesla so he couldn't go to gas stations anymore because he realized every time he was going to gas stations, he was buying things that he didn't want. So you can see a lot of these strategies are basically saying, look, in the moment, you're not going to win the impulsivity battle with willpower. This is something that you have to plan for. And by designing the environment, removing the cues, by empowering the planner and not the doer, we're setting ourselves up for success. Another tip that Katie talks about as far as overcoming impulsivity is the one that's helped me the most. And it's so simple, but it's brilliant. It's like working backwards. It's like, okay, we like to do things that are enjoyable in the moment. Well, can we make the thing more enjoyable so we're more likely to do it?
1: There's some wonderful research by... um at Fishbach at the University of Chicago and Caitlin Woolley at Cornell. What they've shown is that most of us think when we have a big new goal we want to approach, we we've got to find the most efficient, effective path and just push our way through. Use the willpower. Um, a small fraction of people take a different approach, which is that they think. I should look for a fun way to pursue this goal so that I'll enjoy the experience.
0: I've been trying and failing at working out consistently since I graduated college, which was a really long time ago. A few years ago, I read all the habit books and tried to implement some of those strategies. First I was like, okay, reduce friction. So I bought a bunch of equipment and put it in my house. So it's right there and I can use it anytime. Then I was like, okay, I need to make this visual. I would leave the bench and the weights in my office so I would see it all the time. And then I'd scour the internet for the perfect workout program, the perfect total body workout. I'd find something really good, but never stick with it long enough to see a real change. Eight months ago, all my family's in town, and my sister signed us all up for a class at Orange Theory. I drug my feet, but I went. Fast forward to now, I've been to over 150 classes, by far the most sustained period of exercise of my whole life. Now, if you're looking at this through the habit lens, it doesn't really make sense. First, there's friction. It costs money to go to these classes. I have to drive 15 or 20 minutes just to get there. There's no visual reminders. There's nothing sitting in my living room. And of course, Orange Theory isn't the all-time best perfect workout for me. So what's allowed me to be so consistent with it? I just like going. It's really enjoyable. I found coaches that I really, really like that play music that I really, really like. I look forward to going to the class.
1: And what's important that Ayelet and Caitlin have shown in their research is that you actually persist much longer when you pursue your goals in a way that's fun than when you focus on efficiency. So when we nudge people, do it the fun way. They keep doing it because the experience is pleasant. And ultimately, to achieve a goal, persistence is key. It's not about how far you get on each attempt. It's about how far you get overall.
0: So a fun workout that you do is better than the perfect one that's still a tab on Google Chrome. Next obstacle, procrastination. This is like a cousin of impulsivity. There's a bit of overlap, but they are different things. Procrastination is, I'm putting off this thing that I know I need to do for later.
1: One thing we touched on earlier in this conversation is related to procrastination because procrastination comes from the tendency to care more about instant gratification than about long-term rewards. And if that's the case, right, if you're always saying like, oh, right now, I want to sit on the couch and watch TV. Tomorrow, I'll go to the gym. Right now, I want to eat pizza. Tomorrow, I'll eat healthy. Right now, I want to spend my paycheck. Next month, I'll set some aside for a rainy day. That's how we're wired. We procrastinate on our big goals because of that desire for instant gratification.
0: So what are some things that we can do to avoid procrastination? Katie talks about the importance of commitment devices. In a way, you can think about these as empowering the planner and taking the decisions away from the doer. When we're in planner mode, basically, we're just trying to lock in things in the future. So in the moment, the doer doesn't have a choice. So you can do this by setting up constraints and rules and due dates.
1: So commitment devices are great. We generally think they sound weird, again, because you're finding yourself or constraining yourself, but the evidence on them is extraordinary that they help, they help us reach our goals. There's a reason your teacher provides deadlines in your class for all your assignments instead of saying, turn all the homework in at the end of the semester. People actually do better in school when there are deadlines that are spaced out evenly, because those are penalties that force us not to procrastinate, let all the work pile up in a way that um, will lead to worse outcomes. So think about how you can set commitments in your own life to get better things. Randomized controlled trials show they're enormously effective. My favorite study looks at helping people quit smoking, and it shows that If people are given the opportunity to put money in an account that they will have to forfeit six months later if they fail a nicotine or cotinine urine test... They don't have to put money in the account. They just can. It exists. Here you go. You may put money in it. Just the ability to do that increases smoking quit rates by 30% over sort of standard practice for helping people quit, giving them other tools. Um, It can help us save more too, by the way, to have a savings account that you can't withdraw money from until you reach a predetermined date or goal that you self-set. And this is people who can also put money in liquid accounts with the same interest rate. They just also have a locked account that they have access to. Having a place you can lock your money away increases saving about 80% year over year.
0: Moving on, another big obstacle that we all deal with is forgetfulness.
1: It sounds silly, but Sometimes the reason we don't achieve our goals is that it's never top of mind when we need to get around to it, when we need to actually take action. We just keep forgetting.
0: In her book, Katie talks about voting and taking medicine. And these are really good examples because what, voting happens once a year. That's not enough time or reps to build a real habit. Same is true if we're taking medicine. Usually it's like 12 pills in the bottle. Well, 12 pills isn't enough to build a habit, By the time the habit's built, the pills are gone. So building habits in those scenarios is not the answer.
1: Forgetting may happen less once you build a habit, but it's not really a habit you need to overcome forgetting.
0: But what can we do? Three things. Timely reminders, distinctive cues, and cues-based planning. Timely reminders are pretty obvious, but it's setting the alarm to buzz right when I need to leave to go work out. Distinctive and visual cues are leaving the book on your nightstand, leaving out your running shoes, putting the medicine next to the sink. It's so you see it, and if you see it, you're less likely to forget. Cue-based planning is simple, but also really effective. And it's, it's basically saying, when blank happens, I will blank. When I go on a walk, I will call my mom. When I make coffee, I will take my medicine. When I see the leash hanging on the doorknob, I'll take my dog on a walk. Something that's really helped me with this one is just assume that you're going to forget. There's so many times where it's like in the moment, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, I got this, no problem. Nope, assume that you're going to forget and then go over the top with distinctive cues that can help you in the moment remember to do what you got to do. Another obstacle is laziness.
1: I actually have a funny take on laziness. I think I see it as not such a negative, but actually a byproduct of being really efficient creatures. So if you think about... So my background is in computer science. If you actually think about what computer scientists try to do or think about like what Google does for you that's so magical and effective, Google is very lazy. Good algorithms, good computers, good systems are generally very efficient because they've found shortcuts. Um, that That's a huge deal. And humans like to take shortcuts. We like to do the easiest thing we can. It's very productive. Once you recognize that about yourself and don't think of it as a, let me say, limitation, but rather a feature, you can actually use it to your own advantage.
0: So as an example, if there's only healthy food in my house, actually the lazy thing is to eat what's there. It doesn't require much effort. And it takes more effort to leave the house, drive to the store to get maybe unhealthy food. So you see, I I know I'm going to be lazy, but I'm reducing friction on the thing that I want to do and increasing friction on the thing that I want to avoid. So with this laziness obstacle, this is where some of the habit strategies actually do help us out. Over time, if I do start to build up a habit and I get to be on autopilot, You see, that is a form of laziness, and that can help me, especially if I'm building habits around activities or things that I want to do more of.
1: What is it that you can do to set yourself up for success so it's the easiest thing? Defaults are incredibly powerful. Whatever happens, whatever is the path of least resistance. The most famous study showing how powerful defaults are at this point, I think, is a study that was done just looking at what happened when a company changed its onboarding policy, for new employees from automatically inviting them to enroll in a retirement savings program, but requiring them to check a box on a piece of paperwork to have that happen, to automatically enrolling them in that program, but inviting them to check a box in paperwork so it wouldn't happen. And suddenly, they went from roughly 50% of employees saving for retirement to almost 90%. This is an incredible effect from just changing things. So the path of least resistance is aligned um, with what's good for you. So anytime we can think about how to change, they're called defaults. And the default is what's in my, what's in my fridge? You know, what are the clothes I put on? What's the route I take to work? How do we make lazy me take the best path? That's really, really powerful. A final barrier that I've studied, I mostly study internal barriers rather than external challenges, right? There's lots of external barriers. You have the financial wherewithal to make this change. Do you have the good health um, to make this change? Do you have a family life that supports making this change? But one thing that sort of sits in between those, the internal and the external is, Uh, the people you surround yourself with and the messages they send you because you do have some control over that and it shapes the way you think about the problem. So if people in your social network are achieving more in the area where you hope to achieve more, that is a huge boon for you. If on the flip side they are not super achievers, or they're not supportive of what you're trying to achieve, that can really harm you in ways you may not fully appreciate. So that, that's another important barrier sort of so your social um, surroundings. And I talk about this when I write often as uh, the challenge of conformity and conforming to our peers.
0: I know a lot of the examples that we've gone through are about like fitness and nutrition, But these strategies can be really effective when it comes to learning. And I know this because since I read the book, I've been using this to help me get better at stuff. Now, this is gonna be easier for the YouTubers because you can see what's happening here. But I made a little flip book that stands on my desk and I call it the skill book. And it's a bunch of pages with, with a bunch of different designs, but each page says the same thing. It says, for the next two weeks, I'm working to get a little bit better at blank. And then I write something in. Now, this isn't the perfect solution, but I did take a lot of inspiration from Katie's book to build the skill book. And so far, it's been kind of awesome. I've focused on becoming a better storyteller. I learned how to build the studio that I'm in right now. And a few other skills that have really helped me a lot in what I do. For most of the skills that I wrote down, It's not about adding more to my plate and spending more time practicing it. It's about taking advantage of the reps and opportunities that I get day in and day out without even adding extra time. So if I write down a skill like I want to get better at listening, what's happening is I'm extracting more value from every conversation I have because I'm kind of in learner mode. It's I'm trying to get better at listening. Oh, here's a rep. And I'm taking advantage of that. This is a strategy that I really stole from the U.S. Olympic volleyball team. So leading up to the Olympics, they did an activity that they call Declaration Day. So every two weeks, every player, every coach goes to a whiteboard and they write down the skill that they're going to be intentional about building for those two weeks. Then they still do the same drills, the same exercises, the same practice plan. But they found that by writing something down, The players are more intentional about those skills and they're extracting more growth from the practice that they were already gonna do. Same rules apply to you and I. More times than not, to get better at the skills that matter to you and I, it's not about extra time, but it is about being a bit more intentional and taking advantage of the reps and opportunities that are already there in front of us. How to Change by Katie Milkman has been one of the most helpful books that I've read. So Katie, thank you so much for the book. And also thank you so much for sitting down and doing the interview with us. We're going to put links to all of her stuff below. For more resources on learning and leadership, you could check out our website, thelearnerlab.com. We have one more episode left in season four, and I can't wait to share it with you next week.